Welcome to a special episode of Extra Milestone, the film anniversary podcast, a spin-off series of Cinemaholics, where we, once a month, take a look at a film anniversary, a film that has gone the extra mile and therefore has an extra milestone. The movie for this month is The Silence of the Lands, which came out on February 14th, 1991. I'm your host, John Agroni, and with me, I have a regular of Extra Milestones, so thrilled to have her back. It's Julia Tatey. Hello, thank you for having me back to discuss this movie, John. I really, really am excited about this conversation because this is such a crazy big important movie so much to talk about and i just have a feeling it's going to be a, a good one here because we're talking about one of the most influential films of our lifetime i mean this film came out when both of us were you know <laughs> i i was barely alive and uh, i think julia you were you were on the precipice you were almost upon the world i was four years away from my existence on this earth yes <laughs> yeah it's 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 kind of impossible for us to imagine a world where this movie doesn't exist considering the influence it has on so many genres so many films and tv shows since and so we, we have a lot to discuss with the silence of the lambs 30 years old this month you spook easily starling not yet sir he's past the others the last cell, I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, She'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. Call this easy, sir. Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Thank you, Clary. And first, you know, I want to kind of get your impression, Julie, of uh, what was the first time you saw this movie and what's your legacy with this one? So the first time I actually saw this uh, was a few years ago. I was 21 years old and I was doing my own little project of sitting down and watching every single film that ever won Best Picture. The Silence of the Lambs is such a fascinating film within that particular part of the pop culture lexicon because this film actually is one of only three movies to win the Big Five at the Academy Awards, which is Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Directing, and Best Screenplay. And the only other two films to have ever done that were It Happened One Night, which came out in 1934, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975. That's right. We are completing the trilogy because It Happened One Night was the first film we ever talked about on Extra Milestone. And then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that was an Extra Milestone from last year. So here we go with The Silence of the Lambs. It's kind of a weird coincidence. It's one of those odd things, but very happy it worked out that way. So yeah, obviously, this is a very celebrated film. It was kind of a no-brainer for us to pick this one for this month. Would it wouldn't have felt right otherwise. It was a huge box office hit, of course, $272 million worldwide, which is pretty insane considering, you know, what kind of film it is. A lot of people cite this as like a horror and the only horror film to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars. But do you consider this a horror? I, I know people call it like psychological horror, but I don't know. To me, it's more of like a thriller, like almost like a like a thriller noir kind of film. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely can see it both ways as being a straightforward thriller, but I definitely believe that def that has elements of a psychological horror. You have that buildup, you have that intensity, and you have that pulsating sort of narrative that just continues to build until, and we can get into this, but the last half hour of the film, which in totality, it's two hours long, but the last half hour really brings a huge wallop. So yeah, I, I mean, I could, I would definitely still consider it a horror based on the psychological elements that it presents. 
All right. Yeah. So this was directed by Jonathan Demi, who uh, definitely one of our best filmmakers of the 90s, for sure. Right before or right after he made Silence of the Lambs, he also made Philadelphia, which was also a big hit. He's made other films like The Mancurian Candidate and Rachel Getting Married and Married to the Mob. Uh, so many films over the course of his career. But a lot of people would say The Silence of the Lambs is perhaps his best, his triumph, the, the film that would really go on to define his legacy as a director, especially considering how much this inspired. Not only did it really bring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins to like a star power they had never experienced before, particularly with Jodie Foster more as an adult because she had been a, a child actress and, and she was very well known at this point. But Anthony Hopkins, up until this point, he wasn't an unknown actor necessarily, but it's he's kind of similar to like Johnny Depp, where he was was a little bit more well known in his youth, but wasn't like a household name or anything until like this was the defining. This was like his Jack Sparrow. I'm kind of talking to our younger listeners who might you know not be as aware of Anthony Hopkins' trajectory as an actor, but yeah, I mean up until this point, probably his best role was Elephant Man, another extra milestone. And for Jodie Foster, this is an interesting time of her career as well, where she was kind of getting into more adult roles. This was. Uh, the same year that she directed her first film. So we're really seeing her at a really creative high for her career. But okay, Silence of the Lambs. Let's talk about this one more generally. And, you know, you kind of mentioned that you've seen it before and then you rewatched it. Now, how did it hold up for you, Julia? Like, what, what was it like kind of coming back to this one? Were there, was there a lot of uh, things that you maybe caught that you didn't before? Or a lot of things you were thinking about that you didn't think about previously? Definitely, yeah. I think part of the reason why this film holds up so well is because you can return to it every year or so and find things that you weren't paying attention to and that you weren't privy to upon first or previous viewing. I was definitely paying a lot of attention to the cinematography and the director of photography for the film was Tak Fujimoto, who is just incredibly accomplished and the way that the camera is positioned from a character's perspective to a very observing observatory perspective as well throughout the film, it's incredibly fascinating, as well as the editing, which was just such a huge narrative device for the film, and I think part of what makes it so great. Yeah, just really paying a lot of attention more so to the conversations that are had in the film, particularly between Dr. Lecter and Agent Starling. So it's, yeah, I it completely holds up for me. Obviously, there are also some cultural touchstones that I think were really important to discuss and walk away from with a different perspective or a more nuanced perspective this time around. And reading different perspectives also lent itself to a more firm understanding of the film upon second viewing. I'm really glad you mentioned the cinematography because it's something that definitely stood out more to me on this rewatch than it has previously. I've seen Silence of the Lambs only twice. First time I saw it was in high school, and it was one of those things where I saw it you know, kind of against the will of my parents, kind of secretly, right? I was like 14, 15. So I was far, far away from, you know, having the, you know, the cinematic knowledge to really understand the language of this film and what really stands out about it. I mean, even at a young age, I think that you can watch this film and really click with it because it's so entertaining and because it's the sort of thing where the finer details, the things that make it really stand out as a just exceptional film are things that you don't necessarily you know need to be to make the film like just entertaining on a superficial level which i think it really is and yeah i think talk fujimoto for sure longtime collaborator with Jonathan Demi. I think up until Demi was like making his last few films, I think they made like nine or 10 films together. The, these are two people who were really in sync, I think. I really found so much more subtlety and so much more story in the camera of this film. In fact, one of my major criticisms, I remember when I first saw it and something I kind of maintained for a long time was the ending, which we won't give away or say anything specific right now, but there's something about the way the ending plays out that I thought was a little unbelievable and I didn't really understand it. And re-watching this film, I was like, oh, that is the point of this film. It has a lot to do with the camera, with the way that Jodie Foster is shot. And it's all about perspective. And it's all about her, you know, her superpower is that she understands people and that she understands she's always being looked at, if I can be cryptic about it. But yeah, Julia, let's, let's talk a little bit about the story here. 
This film stars Jodie Foster, of course, as Clarice Starling, who is an FBI trainee. And she, in the very beginning of this film, is tasked with talking to Hannibal Lecter, who is in an insane asylum. He has been imprisoned for something like eight or ten years, and he is known as Hannibal the Cannibal. And the reason for her to talk to him, this is something I kind of forgot was a point. It wasn't originally to help capture another serial killer uh, known as Buffalo Bill in this film, who is played by Ted Levine. But initially, she goes there under the pretense of she's really just sort of studying Hannibal Lecter. It's just kind of like a casual, like, I want you to go kind of, you know, almost like it's part of her training, right? Yeah, it's almost like even the way that I'm thinking about it is building a psychological profile and exactly. sort of understanding one type of person who committed these type of acts in order to perhaps have a better understanding of how to capture, I guess is the best word to say, someone who is running loose and, and committing these these horrible atrocities as well. Right. And it takes its time kind of like introducing you to this world and like getting into Jodie Foster's perspective of how we catch very early on that she is a woman in a man's world, so to speak in the sense that this time the FBI actually was supporting this film and wanted them to be represented in this film for the sake of recruiting more female FBI agents, which I'm not sure if that went to pass necessarily, but it certainly at this time was a very novel thing. I think it's kind of easy to forget that you know, nowadays with everything from like Criminal Minds and CSI, there's lots and lots of like media that portrays the FBI as being very diverse, not just lots of women, but also, you know, people of color, people of different sexual orientations. It's becoming more and more diverse in that sense. And it's kind of interesting to see this as a throwback to a time when it was so, so like white male centric that it's considered provocative and innovative that like our female character would be a female FBI agent. So that was another thing that I kind of picked up on that I was a little bit surprised that so much attention was put on it. But I think this film really takes off when we get introduced to Dr. Hannibal Lecter, one of my favorite scenes of the movie. And I think it's this scene that really defines what kind of movie we're about to watch. She walks down a hallway and we see all of these inmates and each one is like more and more horrifying, more like bombastic and energetic. And then we get the reveal of Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, calm, at attention, standing, almost not scary, but then scary for not how scary he is. All of these words, all of these descriptions and precautions have been building up to him. And it's such a great character introduction. I think it's so well handled. What do you think of that, that whole scene there? Yeah, absolutely. I really like how you brought up the progression of the men that Clarice walks by before she gets to Dr. Lecter's cell. And I think that, you know, that opening shot, that character introduction, uh, specifically with the cinematography and just the visual language that's used of him just standing very in control. One of the things that I noticed in observing Anthony Hopkins' performance of Dr. Lecter is he rarely, if ever, blinks which just kind of brings in this observation idea, even theme even more into the story. And he's just so, there's something very sinister about his ability to maintain and hold on to control. And I think that that kind of creates this really fascinating dichotomy between this idea of this is a person who is the epitome of all evil, and yet they're so in control and sinister and it's almost un inhuman the way that Anthony Hopkins's performance relays itself honestly. I have to be honest I have never seen the other Hannibal movies. I, I never saw Hannibal which came out in 2001 and I never saw Hannibal Rising. I've also never seen the Hannibal TV show. I, I never saw Manhunter which is uh, we forgot to mention this is based on a book a novel from 1998 or 1988 by Thomas Harris which is called Silence of the Lambs and there was an adaptation of one of the other books set in this universe with Hannibal Lecter and a different character named William Graham that book is called Red Dragon and yeah they, they made that movie in like I think like 1986. But for me, Silence of the Lambs is my only sort of impression or my imprint of this character. Did, did you you have any sort of like extra knowledge of this franchise? Are you have you seen the other things? 
I have not seen the other film adaptations of Harris's work. I have not seen Red Dragon. I did not see Hannibal, which came in the years following the Silence of the Lambs release. However, I did for a time watch the, I believe it was NBC series Hannibal, where Mads Mikkelsen plays the titular role. And it's just really fascinating, I think, in a way that this character has become so embedded within a subsection of the pop culture lexicon that it's always one people continue to want to go back to and mine through that psychology and and you know i mean we'll go into this further too but the silence of the lambs really kicked off audiences fascination with serial killers and crime procedurals and psychological profiling and i think that it's just such a fascinating thing that it's this specific character and Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. I don't believe he's even in the film for more than 30 minutes. And yet he's created such an impression that is just completely indelible. Yeah, there are there are some people who try to say that it's like 15 minutes, but that's definitely not the case. Yeah, it's around like 30-ish. But yeah, he's not in the film a ton. And I think that's because he's more of a supporting character, even though he has such an impact on this movie. He's, he is very crucial to it. So I understand why they put him up for best actor, not best supporting. But yeah, you know, this, this film obviously, you know, as we've mentioned, kicked off just such a wave of true crime and a fascination, a paranoia of serial killers that wasn't nearly as prominent at this time. We have to remember that even like the idea of a serial killer had only been coined maybe like a decade prior. And this this was the decade that, you know, really saw things like unsolved mysteries and just all of this material that would really like get people to feel like a sense of fear. And that kind of gets into some of the subtext of this film, as we'll definitely talk about, and some of the ways that it's been pretty harmful toward some of the things that it, it tackles. Specifically, I do want to mention Mindhunter, which is one of the most recent success stories in terms of like a true crime serial killer thing and to me feels like such a fitting companion piece of this like if you really want to see how far this genre has come i would say that watching silence of the lambs and then going to mindhunter you see such a drastic but understandable evolution of this genre because it, it's clear that david fincher was heavily inspired by this film and, and many other films even though i think a lot of people compare seven to silence of the lambs even though seven i think is a far far darker and bleaker film by by many comparisons this one feels a little bit more like a Hollywoodified. Like there, there is like sort of a a hero here. There is like a journey. There is a sort of like spectacle, almost to a detriment. Some could argue. But all that said, I, I guess the point is that this is a film that I can understand winning Best Picture. Whereas like some of the other films in this genre just haven't been able to do the same sort of thing since. But yeah, so talking about Hannibal Lecter, I, I do want to mention that he is he's he's a monster and like he's a movie monster. You know, he has reached the heights for of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. He, he is that iconic, but I guess I've just never had an interest in this character beyond Silence of the Limbs. I've never been interested in what his other stories could be in like these other movies. I've just, I don't care about it. And I, you know, maybe that's wrong of me. Maybe I would like those things. I have heard that the show is really good and is like a very good like extension of this that is very removed from the Hopkins portrayal. So maybe one day I'll, I'll get into that. It does seem worthwhile. There's only like three seasons. I have heard Clarice, which is like the latest thing, and it follows her like a year after this movie. I've heard that is not very good at all either. So <laughs> I guess I won't be checking that one out anytime soon. But okay, let's talk a bit more about the big dramatic point of this film is trying to catch Buffalo Bill. And I think this is this is definitely where the film finds its some of its more iconic moments, like the rub this rub the lotion on the skin scene. The whole point is to try to capture him. And as we go, we learn that Buffalo Bill, who again played by Ted Levine, is a serial killer who skins his female victims. In order to catch him, Jodie Foster's character Clarice and Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, she goes to him and is trying to like get insight into like how does a serial killer work trying to like glean clues and things like that maybe some direct things that Lecter knows about this man and it's like a cat and mouse game the interesting th thing about Hannibal is that he's not just a cannibal he is also like a manipulative psychological predator it's like he if he doesn't like you, he just wants to eat you because he just has no respect for you. But with Clarice, 
it's clear that he doesn't want to murder her. He doesn't want to kill her. He wants to feed on her emotions. It's like all aspects of like a human being are appetizing at him. It's very disgusting, but it, it does, it is something that is really fascinating in terms of like, what if a psychiatrist was a cannibalistic serial killer kind of thing? So what did you think of the main plot of this story with him and Buffalo Bill and all of that? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously the central narrative within the film. It's the story that we follow. It is literal cat and mouse chases, both in psychological senses as well as a very literal one of trying to find this serial killer. I was completely enveloped into it. Obviously, having seen it before, I knew what to expect, but paying attention more so to the pacing of the film this time around really just added to the craftiness of it and how well it plays into these themes of observation and and stalking and you know we keep saying it but the the cat and mouse aspect of of the entire film yeah and it, it's just amazing i'm so glad you brought up mind hunter too it's just very fascinating too that the focus is also on the psychological aspect of trying to understand and glean details as opposed to just going from point a to point b to point c in order to find this killer so I think definitely we should talk about how this film was received in its time. When it first came out, it was considered a sleeper hit. You know, over time, because of like word of mouth, people were like, you need to see this. And then it went on to just become more and more acclaimed to the point, of course, where it would go on to win the big five Oscars. It has a really high Rotten Tomatoes score. It got high reviews from a lot of critics, including like Roger Ebert and such. And it had a high cinema score. I think its cinema score was like an A minus, which is pretty good. That said, it wasn't well-received by everybody. There were some people who gave it bad reviews. Gene Siskel, uh, you know, of Ebert and Siskel, he didn't like the film. He said, Foster's character, who is appealing, is dwarfed by the monsters she is after. I'd rather see her work on another case. Uh, what, what do you think of that, that criticism? It's, it's one that I, I didn't expect to see. I would have thought Siskel would have liked this one, personally. Yeah, I mean, it's, surprise it's not necessarily all that surprising, I think, hindsight you know, we're looking back at this movie 30 years later, and I think that there's definitely a lot of valid critical points to be made about it. Some of it being positive, others being pejorative. But I think that it's very interesting that Siskel would bring up Foster's character specifically, because I think that she is so vital to... There is no Silence of the Lambs without Clarice Starling. So it's, it's just so interesting to see that and also to know that Jodie Foster's performance kind of steamrolled so many more female characters in popular culture and in media that really kind of held their own in male-dominated spheres. I mean, I'm thinking of Agent Scully in The X-Files as like one example of that. I believe it's Anna Torv who's in Mindhunter who kind of follow in these very similar archetypes. Also in Fringe. And in Fringe as well. Yeah, how can we forget? But I, I think that it just really kind of kickstarted a lot of female characters that weren't as, you know, if they were seen, it wasn't necessarily as popularized. And I think that the fact that Foster kind of imbues her performance with so much understanding of she is a woman in this space and taking up this space is so critical to the entirety of the film and its thesis. No, I totally agree. I think that that is probably where this film works the most. It's like where it goes from being good to great is how it handles her perspective. And the, the dichotomy between her being a woman who is trying to solve this case and how it's, it's almost like her skill as perceived in this film is that she's able to understand people that she's able to see who they really are. Whereas like everybody else, they just see her as a woman. They don't, they don't really respect or appreciate her. But then it turns out like, you know, not to give anything away, but like later in the movie, one of the biggest parts of the case that gets cracked is when it's her and one of her friends, I, for, I forget who plays her, but another female agent, they're able to just sort of sit there and work as colleagues. You know, they're, they're just able to like talk and focus on another. It's one of the few moments in the film where she makes eye contact with the camera. There's like a, a comfort level there that's just not there when she's with a lot of the other characters. Like, for example, Jack Crawford, who played by Scott Glenn. And so I, I think that it's like little cues like that, that really work. That said, when this came out, 
there was a ton of criticism from the LGBT community when this film came out because of how it portrays Buffalo Bill. And it, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, we were talking about what we were going to say in this film. It's difficult for us to comment on a lot of this considering, you know, we, we definitely are not like representative of the community that is specifically calling this out. So we, we try to do a little bit of homework here and kind of refer to trans critics, people who have you know, seen the film and have written about it. And so let, let's share some of that, Julia. Who who did you come across or what were some of the takes that get into some of the criticism of this film and kind of how we can wrap our heads around it? You know, obviously we're not saying that this film needs to be despised or anything like that and you can't appreciate what's good about it. But of course, we definitely want to look at what the criticism is. No, definitely. It's really important to pay attention to the fact that, what, that a specific community's understanding of a piece of popular culture isn't a monolith. They're not going to, and it's not binary either. It's incredibly complicated. And a text like The Silence of the Lambs is very complicated to parse through because there are so many crafty positives to take away as well as many negatives and valid criticisms that should be made. So recently, on February 16th, I believe it was, culture reporter for Vox Media, Asia Romano, they wrote a, an incredible just kind of breakdown of the silence of the silence of the lamb's lasting legacy and how the film has really left an impact in both positive ways and negative ways and one of the most poignant sections is about its impact on the transgender community people it represents and how that impact was for the worse romano brings up you know a lot of very specific moments from the film specifically how jonathan to does try to create distance between Buffalo Bill being coded as a trans character. There's an exchange between Dr. Lecter and Clarice Starling where they just outrightly say this person who we come to find is Jane Gum. Both of those characters are very quick to point out this person is not transgender. Even Clarice Starling herself observes that most members of the transgender community or people who identify as trans are usually passive and there is no correlation between violence and gender identity. And then, you know, Romano kind of breaks this down and brings in different perspectives. And one of the perspectives that I think is really important is another Vox writer, Emily Vanderwerf, who is a great cultural critic and just want to plug her work as much as possible. But she has also talked about this idea that, you know, the way that Jonathan Demi tries to distance Buffalo Bill being an outright trans character is not really great. And it's important to note that while the intention is there, the impact is far more important from what we take from a piece of cinema, specifically like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I think that the key there is the intention. Like, it's clear to me that Jonathan Demi wasn't trying to, like, say something harmful or have, like, a harmful outcome, like you're saying. But, uh, you know, reading some of these pieces and just watching the film itself, to me, that whole thing did feel a little bit like lampshading. Like, Demi wanted to have it both ways, you know? Yeah, the, in the, the intent is very poorly communicated and it's almost even glossed over because what people walk away with is like Emily Vanderwerf has noted in tweets from February 8th and also I'm sure in uh, a piece that you're going to reference as well is that people don't walk away remembering that conversation between Dr. Lecter and Agent Starling. They just remember seeing Buffalo Bill be this person who attacks women, wears their clothing and potentially wears their skin. Exactly, exactly. And, and and I was kind of, that's the battle I've had with myself. It's like, when you do watch the film, it's pretty clear to me that, yes, they do say the right thing, or they, it, it feels like in order to keep this part of what I assume is in the novel, Demi was like, well, you know, I don't want people to walk away from this film feeling a certain way or feeling like this fear and transphobia, but it still is transphobia, even if you use a few sentences to try to code away from that. And I just, I think it's important to point that out. It doesn't mean that the film is like, like, I don't think anybody should feel bad for liking this film or anything like that. I just hope people are able to approach it and actually like approach it critically and, and understand, like, and have some empathy for the people who did watch this. And as a result of this film, a lot of people came away from it, like you said, not remembering that conversation or not, you know, digesting, you know, some of the 
the sub, not the subtext, I guess, literal text there, but really picking up on the subtext, which is like trans people are somebody, are people to be feared. An article that I came across on AV Club from Harmony Colangelo, who is trans, said 30 years in Silence of the Lambs, James Gum still deserves better. And, and in some ways she like defends some of like what James Gum as a character is experiencing here, but then just points out how some of the studies that are referenced by Hannibal Lecter in terms of like, oh, these like gender affirming surgeries, there's there's actually a really complicated history beyond there that the film just kind of oversimplifies and ignores like the details of, of like, you know, there were trans people, especially in the 80s, who were like James Gum, who were trying to get trans surgery, but being told that they can't for reasons that aren't valid, <laughs> you know, like things like, well, you're not enough of a woman. And that's why a lot of people, uh, there's a lot of a uh, trans exclusionary literature that is kind of informed by subtext in this movie, which is really harmful. And this idea there, there is a subtext of this film of, you know, Clarice is the hero because she is a woman. She has the woman experiences. She can win in the end because of that. Whereas the villain is somebody who is just trying to be a woman, not really a woman with woman experiences. And that is like really harmful dialogue used by TERFs in order to curtail trans rights. And so I think the, this movie, it's obviously a relic and it's obviously one that intentionally or not, it has a lot of stuff in it that can be read and had a lasting impact on people. A lot of people do walk away from it thinking trans people are like a certain way, but they honestly are not. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of in that vein, if we have listeners that want to really explore and understand trans representation in popular media, I think I can speak for John as well on this, that we both highly recommend checking out the documentary Disclosure, which is available on Netflix, which goes through just decades of history about how trans people are portrayed in popular media, as well as the changes that have been made, the representation that is currently here, and some of the harmful representation and characters that we have seen in the past, including Buffalo Bill. Absolutely. Yeah, we talked about Disclosure on the show, the main show last year, and that's such a great documentary and how it's just so honest about like its subjects or the subject in there are so honest where they feel conflicted. You know, they, they are talking about these movies and shows where they're like, you know, on the one hand, it's so great that like there was some representation. I just wish it hadn't been this harmful or, you know, this this representation here, it's like a mixed bag. In some ways it really works, in some ways it doesn't. And the point is that their hope and, you know, the, the hope that I'm perceiving is that as time goes on and progresses, as we recognize these things, it's not that we want to ignore these movies and, and these depictions and pretend they don't exist and just like write them off. But it's more that we want to like understand them fully so that as the, these stories progress, they can become better and better and we can just learn from these things. That, that's all people are advocating. I hope people aren't, you know, taking anything else away from what we're saying here or what they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I feel like I can speak for both of us on this again. I think it's so important that we also understand that engaging critically with movies that we walked away from and we loved and, and just felt like such an adrenaline rush from it but can't explain quite why we love it but then taking a step back and contextualizing everything and understanding you know that phrase your faves are problematic there there is space for conversation about what makes an artifact of popular culture great and its lasting impact, as well as the pejoratives and negatives that come with it as well. We shouldn't be having these binary conversations of good and bad. It should be a lot more complicated because that's what art is. And when it comes to something like Silence of the Lambs, I mean, can't get more complicated than that. I couldn't agree more. Especially as like we brought up two other films that have been talked about in the show. It happened one night and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Like those films have their own baggage too. <laughs> they just do. Oh yeah. You know, like it happened one night has like, it makes very light of domestic abuse, which is very serious. And one flew over the cuckoo's nest has some pretty sketchy, you know, depictions of mental health. But that's the thing. It's, it's okay. Like it's fine. Cause like those films came out in a different time and they came out under different circumstances. And it's just fascinating to remark on them and like, and some ways how far we've come that we can kind of look back and, and understand those. And I always think that like someday, especially we're going to look back on the films coming out today and be like, my goodness, how did people enjoy, you know, how this was, this like came across, you know, it's just kind of how culture really works. But speaking a little bit more on the cultural impact, I mean, uh, there, there's also like how this film informed an entire generation of how the FBI is portrayed. And something that I didn't catch watching this a lot younger was they, they do kind of remark on some of the more 
pretty despicable actions of the FBI during the civil rights era. They even kind of mentioned, it's like, we need better PR. And it's kind of fascinating to me because this movie sort of kicked off a lot of like what we call now like copaganda, which is a sort of like lionizing of law enforcement as like the main protagonist in a lot of different properties. It's usually because it's, it's a convenient thing. It's like if your cops, it makes sense for the FBI to be good guys in certain things like this because they're the ones who usually have jurisdiction, right? But, you know, this sort of did kick off a, hey, maybe the FBI isn't so bad kind of thing considering, like, you know, we talked about recently on the show Judas and the Black Messiah where, like, you know, the FBI sanctioned murder, you know, on civilians. Like, there's a lot of uh, dark history there. And this film did kind of help smooth that over and kind of raise a generation of millennials like us who didn't really know a lot of that stuff. Or, like, I know that I didn't have, like, a really, full understanding of the legacy of the FBI until it was it was definitely later on in like my life I guess. Yes, me too. I mean, you know, obviously I think that as time has gone on there's been more of a critical eye on law enforcement specifically within the last few years, maybe a decade if I'm going to be generous. And obviously there have been certain anomalies throughout cinematic history. But yeah, I think that in terms of like the binary of understanding film, there was definitely a period and still continues to be a very binary idea of like law enforcement good, criminals or people who are dubbed criminals or projected to be as criminals bad. So I think that that has come a long way. But I think that it's I mean, it's very clear that that was not necessarily the main concern with Silence of the Lambs. I'm not even sure if you know, if it's intent, again, we talk about intent and impact, if its intent was to be this very, like, pro-law enforcement, FBI, almost, uh, not militarist nation, but, but something like that, a surveillance nation. But, you know, we talk about intent, that might not have been the intent, but like you said, the impact is still kind of, like, rolling around and gestating, even though now we have more positive examples about being critical about organizations like the CIA, like the FBI, like local law enforcement, and so on. That was a lot of jumbled words, but I hope I, no, <laughs> I, hope I, totally I get the, the idea across. Yeah, I totally agree. This is like one of the tamer examples of it. Yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's more of like, it sort of led to this thing kind of getting a little bit out of hand, arguably, you know, uh, specifically with just like how I think in this movie, it actually is a little bit more nuanced because of like the sexism of it. And it is sort of portrayed as this thing where a lot of the FBI here is portrayed as pretty incompetent. So, you know, it's it's not like it's like total like it's not Top Gun, you know, or anything Yeah, like and that. I think that also what really matters, too, is just like the way that the film positions itself. It doesn't position itself as... FBI entirely. It's specifically this one woman who herself right. is an anomaly within the entire institution. So, you know, that said, we should finish out this conversation, I think, with talking about the ending. A lot of things to talk about the ending. So if you don't want to know anything about the ending, if you haven't seen the film yet, please come back to us when you do, because we definitely don't want you to get spoiled there. <laughs> yeah, take a break right now to have some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Ah, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, there's two big climaxes of this film. The first one is Hannibal Lecter's Escape which I think really holds up, even though I think it's been ripped off so many times. I know when I first saw it, I saw it coming. You know, it's kind of easy to see coming in modern, you know, with modern eyes because it's been done so many times, like this kind of escape, specifically how he is like, you know, he disguised himself and like he just gets out through like the hospital. But, you know, rewatching it, it still works. It's still a great just set like sequence of the film. But how, how does it hold up for you? Oh, gosh, I remember. I think when I was watching this, I just kept sending you messages of the elevator, the elevator. Yeah, um, it's such a great sequence. And just everything about it, this idea of Hannibal Lecter being like a wolf in lamb's clothing almost during this sequence and the way that he's able to get out. But I think even more so what makes that entire sequence work and what makes a lot of the film work is the editing by Craig McKay. And the editing department is just so tightly knit. Everything just feels like it hits every single beat when it is meant to. From the reveal of the officers and the way they have kind of just been literally just strung up. To the, the, the reveal from the elevator to not seeing people's faces. It's just, it's incredibly well done editing. 
and suspense building and pacing, which I, I mean, I've talked mentioned the pacing before, but if you're going to look at one specific example of from the film of where the pacing works, without question, it has to be Dr. Lecter's escape. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're totally right, because like the pacing is even working like before the sequence because they're building up to it so well with just like little things of like he looks at the pen and then the pen goes missing. And it's just like it's great setup and payoff. And I think it really works how in between those moments when you feel like his escape is like ominous, like it's going to happen, even if this is your first time watching a film, I think it's striking how that's when we get our final confrontation. And that's when the film really crystallized for me of like, oh, this is a Beauty and the Beast story, but it's like, what if the Beast was really a beast? And that's kind of how it's framing these characters and their their very strange energy of like, it gets commented on. I'm really glad that they don't go there, of course, where it's like an actual sexual thing, but it's clearly like a, they are drawn to each other. It's like an unspeakable attraction, not a romantic attraction. It's very different. It's like a psychological It's fascination. Bond. Like yeah. major obs- observatory fascination between these two people of just understanding, you know, from Starling's perspective that this person is a true monster. And also, I think that there is all this conversation and build up about how much of a monster Dr. Lecter is. And we really don't get to see that all out until this sequence, which is just it's yeah, kind of hits the nail on the head, as well as, you know, some of the camera shots that are used that are very Vincent Price oriented of how his face is captured it's all adding these with its visual language it's adding these connotations of yes this person is a monster here you finally get to see it right it's very much like you know it's funny because this is a film i think of when people talk about like some of the best movie villains and the best movies that have a villain and a hero and how they can be two sides of the same coin this is a great case study for it i think people usually think of like okay batman and joker from the dark knight okay but this film really is more like prototypical in the sense of like he they both have the same method they both want to figure out other people he just takes it in a totally different direction where for him it's like almost like a lust of trying to like figure people out for her she's doing it selflessly and yeah i just love like the black and white morality of it but then how the film does make it gray through how like there's too much in common almost of how they work and operate yeah there's like a lot of area for amorality i guess especially in terms of like trying to figure out this connection and why is it that we keep going back to Dr. Lecter to try and get all of this information and those kind of like different narrative cues that add to this conversation of these are two people you know you said it before who are playing cat and mouse with each other they're playing games and it's also just this fascination of kind of meeting someone who is potentially psychologically on your level but they're two very different psychological beings. Then there is the like the actual ending right not the epilogue but the final sequence the last half hour yeah. of this film is crazy <laughs> it's pretty crazy so uh, you know i'll let you get into it because i know for me the first time i saw it i didn't like this sequence as much like i i had issues with it i thought that are we talking about the doorbell right after the doorbell is oh, fantastic. Okay. I, I love the doorbell sequence. still gets me still gets me i remember the first time i actually watched the doorbell we'll go if i could interject and go into detail on the doorbell sequence so uh basically what happens towards the end of the film and we're in spoiler territory so hide your headphones kids but what basically happens is that she's told by agent crawford basically that they have ostensibly found the home of jame jamie gum who is buffalo bill And the FBI is bringing in heavy-duty machinery. They're flying in on this military-grade plane. It's all so intense. And what ends up happening is that the FBI surrounds this house. They have someone there to ring a doorbell. While that doorbell on the outside of that house is being rung, the person, the FBI agent is pushing the button to ring the doorbell. We see Buffalo Bill in his lair. I guess is the best way to call it, trying to get Precious, his dog, out from the prison, basically, that he has put his next victim, Catherine, in. While the doorbell is being run on the outside of the house, we see that he has a setup in his basement lair area where you can tell that a doorbell is being run. It's very right in front of you, very clinical and procedural. What ends up happening is that the FBI agents at the house there where they are, kick the doors in, they go in, no one is there, it's completely empty. 
Upon Buffalo Bill opening up the door, Clarice Starling is standing right there looking for, I believe it's a Mrs. Lipton, who used to work with Frederica, which was Gum's first victim. And it's just the payoff is talk about payoff and build up. It's an absolute kind of blood rushing from the head and just kind of an oh no <laughs> sort of feeling. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you could be tricked into thinking like, well, that's the end of the movie, right? It's like, there's no way he's going to get out of this. And it's like, oh, you know, looking at your watch maybe. But, you know, how how is he, how can he get out of this? But yeah, when he, it switches over to no, it's Clarice who has to confront this guy on her own. That is when you you definitely are feeling the tension. And, and then we get into the sequence where she follows him into the lair. She goes by the pit and then the lights go out. And all of a sudden it gets very dark. And this is where I found it a little bit like I found the scene very tense. But I remember the first time I watched it, I thought the way the resolution of it was a little bit underwhelming because I was like, OK, he he cocks the gun. She kind of hears it and she manages to take him out before he can take her out. And I, I found it underwhelming because I was like, well, that seems weird because he has the night vision. He's able to see her clearly. He has her dead to rights. So like, what's the payoff here? Why isn't she like, how was she able to get out of this? It didn't feel like something had happened that had been set up. It just sort of felt like she was lucky, like really oh, I lucky. I actually kind of disagree just slightly. I do too now. If ever so slightly, John, I want to hear why you disagree first with well, yourself. <laughs> yeah. So the second time, I think I understand it. This is my, this is my takeaway now. It might be different from yours. So I'd I want to definitely hear what you have to say, but for me, it's because she knows what it's like to be watched and she can feel being watched at this point. And this film, the entire time has been setting up that this whole movie in, in a way is about how men look at women and don't really see women and everywhere she goes, even people she sees as friends, Hey, they hit on her, they leer at her, they make comments and she just puts up with it. But it's gotten to the point where she not only is able to see people, she's able to like know when she's being watched. And that's how she's able to have such a great perception of what's going on. She's able to beat him to the punch, even though he's seeing her, he doesn't, he misses. And he misses because he doesn't really see her. And I think it makes more sense thematically, maybe in a, in a more than a literal sense, but it does work because she is the skilled person here. She is the one who has the talent to not only solve this case before anybody else, but also take him down before he can take her down. So that that is my new takeaway. Curious to hear what yours is. Yeah. So you basically said everything I was going to say, but I also think that there's, you know, a point to be made about the objectification of Clarice Starling and also of, you know, the young women that become the victims throughout the film. Uh, there's a really great scene where the young woman who is ostensibly the, the victim that we follow throughout this film, Catherine, her mom is a senator and she puts out this kind of public service announcement, this plea to whomever it is that took her daughter, and she repeats her daughter's name, Catherine, Catherine, and she shows pictures of her when she was little, and she creates this person out of just uh, uh, someone who would ostensibly be a victim. And there's a part where Starling says, when you give, basically when you give someone personhood, when you give them an identity, they're no longer an object. And throughout the entirety of the film, we see Clarice get treated as this object or get looked at and leered at as this object representing kind of femininity and this vessel of womanhood, but being othered and objectified by the eyes that are looking at her. And that's eventually what is to the detriment of Jamie Gum, Jamie Gum, Buffalo Bill at the very end where he's, and even we see his hand reach out to try and touch her almost like he's tenderly trying to, trying to touch kind of a very fragile object. It's, it's, it's very fascinating, but I think that that is part of the reason why it's, it kind of makes sense that it ends the way that it is, is because, as you pointed out, she always knows that she's being watched. It's kind of like the sixth sense that I think a lot of women, women of color, especially trans women, they have to know that they're always being watched. Anyone who's ever been othered in society just knows that they are being watched consistently by dominating identities. And it's, I think that that's why it works out so well in the end. Right. Absolutely. I agree with all that. She's just, she's underestimated and she's able to utilize that for her preservation and saving this other person. And, you know, there's so much else we could talk about. I wish we had another hour. There's, there's so much to discuss in terms of like the title of the film. The title is the aspiration. It's what she wants. It's her goal. Closure on trauma. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was. I had forgotten some of those aspects of the film, and and they're just so rich. And I think it all speaks to like the general point of this film, just being such a a densely populated thing. You know, I I do love the ending that the closing credits don't fade to black, and it's like this haunting liftoff for this Hannibal character and what's going to happen next for him. It's why I don't want to watch the the sequels or the prequels. It's because I feel like I got it. You know, like mm-hmm. that's how I I think it it that is the correct ending for my interpretation, but. I guess that that's everything I have. Is there anything else you wanted to add about The Silence of the Lambs? Uh, no, I think that we hit everything. I really wish that we too could have gone a little bit more into the title of the film and what this what the story means for Clarice specifically in terms of understanding her past and her own trauma and why she is working so so tirelessly to save this young woman, this lamb that she wasn't able to save in her past, but like you said, we could go on for, for hours, honestly, on the denseness of, of this uh, particular film. I guess that is where we will leave it. Although I do appreciate, because I, I didn't know this the first time either. I was so young when I saw the film. I didn't know things. But uh, Roger Corman, seeing him, you know, considering his connection to Jonathan Demi, that was, that was a great, like, kind of semi-cameo. He plays the FBI director. So that that was really cool to see. And I'm, I'm just glad this film exists. I'm really glad that films like this that can still, that's 30 years old, it can just set your heart racing and it can just create such a cinematic world that feels so engrossing and has such a great impact. For sure, it's an extra milestone. And yeah, and I, I think that most people have seen the film. It's not exactly like an underwatched thing. Who knows, maybe next month we'll talk about something that's a little bit more underseen because that's those are always pretty fun conversations too. Yeah, I think that, you know, coming away from this, it's really fascinating to see, you know, yes, this is a film that's 30 years old. Yes, there are definitely aspects of the film, especially narrative and representation-wise, that have not aged well at all, that were not good during the time that it came out either, that were not received well. But it's so fascinating to still see something 30 years later that holds up because of the just immense craft behind it, from the editing to pacing performances by Foster and Hopkins specifically. Yeah, I mean, there are certain elements that just, they, they do not age. And I think the craft is, is definitely part of that, that just simply does not age. Silence of the Lambs is currently available to stream on demand. I think you can rent, purchase it. You can also watch it for free on Pluto TV at the time of this recording. And I wish I had had a DVD, Julie. I know you saw it on a DVD. I wish I had the Criterion, but that costs so much money. (laughs) Maybe someday. (laughs) Julia, where can people find you on the internet if they want to check up on more of your work? You can check out my memeing and (laughs) obnoxious commentary at JLTET14 on the Twitterscape. Sounds good. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter as well at John Negroni. See you all next month. And thank you for listening to Extra Milestone from the Internet California. I am John Negroni. From the Internet with a nice Chianti and some fava beans, I'm Julia Tady. <laughs> See you all next time. Bye.